1867, Russia sold Alaska to the United States. And while much has been said about that $7.2 million acquisition and the politics behind it, less is commonly known about what was happening in Alaska, not Washington, D.C., and not St. Petersburg, but Alaska in the mid-19th century. I'm Anjali Grantham, an Alaskan historian, and this is Alaska Out of the Vault, an exploration of the characters, contexts, cultures, and conundrums that took place in Alaska in the decades around the Treaty of Session. Poet T.S. Eliot wrote, It is only in the world of objects that we have time and space and selves. For this project, we will utilize objects held within Alaska's museums and cultural institutions to shape our inquiry into Alaska's past. Objects like a mountain howitzer, a puffin skin parka, an old salmon can, a slate lance, and more contain stories that the casual observer could never know. For this reason, we'll speak with curators, historians, anthropologists, archaeologists, artists, culture bearers, and more to get a sense as to what these objects tell us about life in Alaska 150 years ago. We will also turn to primary sources of the two-dimensional variety, like letters and manuscripts found in archives around Alaska. Through the upcoming episodes, we'll learn of Alutic whaling, Russian trade, Haida fishermen, and American Army and Navy servicemen. To co-opt T.S. Eliot's language, we will use the world of Alaska's objects to travel through time and space. Our first story concerns a group of Civil War veterans marooned on a beach in Lower Cook Inlet, the Dena'ina people with whom they eventually became neighbors, a Russian who decided to remain in Alaska after his compatriots returned to the motherland, and the United States' first effort to govern its new, vast, mostly unknown to them territory. Welcome to Fort Kenai, 1869 to 1870. William Seward negotiated the Alaska Purchase with Russian minister Edward de Stokel in March of 1867. It was through diplomacy that Alaska became American. Nonetheless, the large mountain howitzer and artillery shell now exhibited at the Alaska State Museum in Juneau hint at a different story. Maritime archaeologist Dave McMahon recovered the mountain howitzer in 2008. Which is a small cannon that they used in the latter latter years of the Civil War. and uh, But they were also very common, uh, you know, in the, the, the Indian Wars of the western U.S., you know, in uh, the 1870s and 80s and a little before that. But uh, these mountain howitzers were... were popular because they were so lightweight and easy to transport. The barrel weighed something like 225 pounds, and then the carriage could be packaged separately, uh, you know, and they could be transported uh, uh, on two mules, basically. Yes, the Treaty of Session was an act of diplomacy, but it was the U.S. Army that was charged with taking account and governing the United States' newest acquisition. Battalion F of the 2nd Artillery was a unit that carried this mountain howitzer, the artillery shell, and a stockpile of other weapons north to Fort Kenai. But it was never used for this purpose, since the torrent, the vessel on which the battalion sailed with the howitzer on board, wrecked near the present-day village of Nunwalik before even making it to Kenai. What was the army even doing cruising in Cook Inlet? When Alaska was purchased on March 30, 1867, there was no articulated plan for civil government. Many presumed that Congress would soon pass legislation to give Alaska some form of government. However, Congress was preoccupied with something much larger and more pressing, Reconstruction. 
The U.S. had just ended the Civil War, and the crumbled nation was grappling with what it would become. With Congress thoroughly consumed with Reconstruction, it was determined that Alaska would be managed as a military district under military posts for the time being. So, General Jefferson C. Davis was sent north as the first military commander of the military district of Alaska. Over the next year, General Davis ordered the establishment of military posts at Sitka, Wrangell, Tongass, Kodiak, the Pribilof Islands, and Kenai. Uh, the second artillery had been involved, you know, in the latter years of the Civil War and a lot of the, some of the battles in the East, like the Battle of the Wilderness and so forth. And after the Civil War, uh, most of them were shipped off to the West Coast. Uh, there was a, a fort at Alcatraz, and that's where a lot of them were, were based. And then uh, when they needed uh, troops to send to Alaska, they sent uh, different companies to different, different places. Battery F switched from the campaign to take Atlanta during the Civil War to establishing an American foothold in Alaska. And their purpose in Alaska? Partially to show their strength to Alaska natives. Dr. Alan Boris is a professor of anthropology at Kenai Peninsula College. Here he describes the Army's orders. General Halleck was the commander of the Army of the Pacific. And after the purchase, 1867, the next step was to send in the military because surely there were hostile Indians here. And in fact, in the directions, it states that uh, that was their intent, that was their purpose for being here. Probably doing reconnaissance of various types as well, but why build a whole fort if you're only doing reconnaissance? Indeed, W.T. Wythe of Battery F reported that the soldiers had been told, quote, Beware of the northern Indians. They are represented to be savage, treacherous, and warlike, and should on no account be trusted, end quote. So this was a preconception at the forefront of the minds of the soldiers of Battery F. With these ideas, four mountain howitzers, and a host of other weapons on board, on June 8, 1868, the Torrent departed Washington Territory with orders to establish a post at the old Russian redoubt of St. Nicholas. They were headed for uh, prob probably Kenai, but they didn't make it there, you know. They stopped at Ketchumac Bay, which they call Kenai Bay and went uh, into what's now the Homer Spit, I guess, and basically declared it uninhabitable. <laughs> so they, uh, they didn't think the ground was strong enough to support any structures. So they uh, were going to establish a temporary fort over at Port Graham. But a storm came up, and, uh, you know, after bobbing around and sort of waiting for the, the storm to let up, you know, they finally decided to head around Dangerous Cape and try to make it to Port Graham. But, uh, of course, they didn't, didn't make it. Serviceman W.T. Wythe later wrote about this ill-fated journey. With the ship's captain drunk below deck, things quickly turned from hairy to catastrophic. The coast appeared very rugged. As far as we could see, it was a high, rocky cliff against which the surf was beating furiously. There was but one landing place a little sandy cove toward which the ship was headed. Extending out from the land was a reef of rocks about a mile and a half in length, some above water, others sunken, and only marked by the breaking of the sea. 
The mate, fearing responsibility, left his post on deck and running below, called the captain. He being still under the effects of his debauch came on deck and knowing probably his condition said, we will not go in now, we will send a boat ahead to sound and gave orders to tack ship. But while he had been hesitating, the current had carried us fearfully near the rocks. The yards were hauled, but the ship did not answer to the helm, and we saw that she was doomed. McMahon continues the story. They, uh, they did have some, uh, some lifeboats, so they were able to uh, get everybody to shore, and it just happened to be uh, at the location of uh, Coal Village, which was a Russian coal mining settlement that had been abandoned uh, a few years earlier. So, uh, you know, there were some buildings there, and uh, so they were able to hold up there for a couple of weeks until they were rescued. Indeed, no lives were lost, but this was the only consolation for the drenched and despondent passengers of the torrent who spent the next 18 days salvaging goods from the sunken vessel and awaiting rescue. Finally, the ship Milan, carrying lumber that was destined to build the new fort, was spotted on the horizon. The next day, a merchant ship arrived in Cook Inlet, and the 150 or so survivors clambered on board and sailed for Kodiak. Battery F determined to stay at Fort Kodiak that winter and set out the following spring for Fort Kenai. This time, they succeeded in finding the old Russian redoubt and got to work building the fort near Denina village. Although the soldiers viewed the landscape as wilderness, it had served as home and hunting grounds for the Denina for generations and as a Russian trading post for 70 years. At the anthropology lab at Kenai Peninsula College, Dr. Boris looks at a map of Fort Kenai using a pen to point out the features. So Skituk was the name of the village, uh, about a mile, I think, from where the Fort Kenai was established, which was established in the same area as the Redoubt St. Nicholas. When the military came, they were going to occupy those buildings, but they determined them to be unfit for use. So they, the commander, McGilvery, got authorization for nine mules to be brought, I don't know where from, so that they could go upriver where there was wood to bring down to build all of these various buildings. The Denina of Skituk were well acquainted with Westerners bearing weapons. They had been trading with the Russian-American company and with the fur trading firms that predated the Russian-American company for decades. The Denina were savvy and fiercely protective of their traditional lands and hunting rights. In fact, Russian footing within Denina land was both slight and tenuous, especially after the Battle of Kenai, during which the Denina killed Russian fur traders at Tionic and Iliamna. Culminating in 1797, there was a major battle with the Russian occupiers and the Denina won. And for the duration of Russian America, there were only about 20 Russians in Kenai and in Cook Inlet in its entirety, with the exception of the coal mining operation, which lasted for about eight years, I think, and never was successful down at uh, Port Graham also. They denied it basically had sovereign control over Cook Inlet for all that time. And there was no Russian presence really to acknowledge. The church was here uh, and a trading post, but that was it. 
But then the sale comes, and all these Americans show up, and okay, here's something else we got to deal with now. One of the best descriptions of Fort Kenai comes from Captain Alfred Lacey Ho, who accompanied Major General George H. Thomas on an inspection trip to the Army's Alaskan posts in the summer of 1869. The buildings are a cluster of log houses, dark and close, among them a little Greek church. The ground, originally covered with timber, is cleared for some distance, and promising gardens occupied part of it. Shade trees planted near the houses were bright and green, and the whole place looked really pretty. It being the Russian-American Sabbath, we went to the church. It is a miniature copy of the one at Sitka, the congregation all Indians, the priest a half-breed, and it is said a drunkard like the rest. The Indians from the small village near all attended the church regularly. There is only one Russian family here, its head being a traitor. He is also a church officer. We'll hear more from this traitor in a moment. Captain Ho mimics typical 19th century Anglo-American views about race in this passage, including the derogatory reference to the priest being a, quote, half-breed. In the view of the Denina and Russians of Skatuk and Fort St. Nicholas, the person was a Creole, or someone whose parents were native and Russian. Many Russian Orthodox priests were Creoles in Russian America. Captain Ho notes that it was the Russian Sabbath in this passage. By that, he meant it was Sunday in the minds of the Denina and Russians, but it was Saturday in the minds of the Americans. These Alaskans were still oriented eastward toward St. Petersburg. These different concepts of time were but one shift in the newly American Alaska, but there were many others as well, including units of measurement, trade practices, and means of communication. In some areas, the change was quick and dramatic. In other places, it was slow and incremental. Yet regardless, during the transition to American rule in Alaska, it is rare to find historical documents that outline these moments of change, or how those in Alaska, like Alaska Natives or the remaining Russians and Creoles, experience the transition from Russian to the American systems. That's what makes the following passage in Ho's account noteworthy, as he describes a moment in which the American yard was adopted as a standard unit for trade. The Russian measure, with an unpronounceable name, is about three-quarters of a yard. This had been used heretofore. The Indians had observed what the soldiers bought with our measure and had demanded for some time that they should have the same. This was granted them today and their prices per measure raised accordingly. This astounded them. They insisted upon getting the yard for the same money as they had been giving for Russian measure. There was a great powwow about this, but after some explanation, they appeared to be satisfied and began dealing. When it was found that they had raised the prices of their furs, though they were paid for them in half dollars, here was another stoppage. And after more speeches and some apparently elaborate orations to the young men from their chief, they reduced their prices to the old standard and all went on again apparently satisfied. This whole exchange seems to have transpired in the trading store operated by the former employee of the Russian-American company Vladimir Stafiev. Examining the experience of Stafiev becomes a rare biographical window into how the Treaty of Session impacted the life of one individual. Stafiev was born in Estonia and became an employee of the Russian-American Company in 1863. In 1864, he became the manager of the Nicholas Redoubt at Kenai. He was married to a Denina woman named Eugenia Mishlikov. 
According to the Treaty of Session signed by the U.S. and Russia, Russians and Creoles in Alaska had three years to move to Russia if they so decided, or they could choose to become citizens of the U.S. The vast majority of ethnic Russians returned to Russia with their families. Stafiev is one of just a handful of Russian-American company employees to remain behind. Soon after the Alaska Purchase, the assets of the Russian-American company, including buildings and goods, were sold to a business so organized under the name of Hutchison Coal & Company. This business organized again as the Alaska Commercial Company, which is a predecessor of the AC stores that Alaskans know today. When AC acquired the store at Nicholas Readout, Stafiev stayed on as the manager. That was in 1868. Why did he stay in Kenai at all? His wife, Eugenia, likely had no desire to move to a country that she had never been to, far from her family and people. Additionally, the couple had a baby daughter, Tatiana, who was born in 1867, and it would have been treacherous for her health to make the voyage to Russia. For whatever reason, Stafiev stayed in Alaska, even as the soldiers stationed at Fort Kenai departed. On August 12, 1870, issues were ordered to close the port, slightly over a year after the post had been established. Here, Stafiev updates his friend on news from Fort Kenai and relates his indecision about the future. This document was written in Russian and translated by Dr. Richard Pierce. My dear friend, Stefan Mikhailovich, I now find myself in a very difficult position. Don't know where to go, don't know where to stay, and finally, don't know what to start on. If I stay in Kenai, what will I do? If I go to Sitka, I hear that they want to abandon Sitka, so there won't be any Americans there, and then there won't be anything to live on. I wanted to go to Hamburg, but again hear that things are bad there. So what am I to do? My head is really spinning from not knowing what to do. I shall await your advice. Our Fort Kenai is to be done away with. They are now evacuating half their soldiers, and the other remaining half will be moved out in September or October. Then praise life will be peaceful. These soldier gentry have burned all Kenai for us. First, they burned my bathhouse, then their own house. Finally, on May 23rd, they burned the sexton's house, which was in the bush. And as a farewell performance, they went to the creek and left a fire there. And now we are afraid the readout itself may burn down. And that's all the news of Fort Kenai. The ship leaves today, and I am writing in a hurry, and besides, there's nothing more to write about anyway. Thank God I am in good health, and I wish you the same, in anticipation of friendly advice and some more news from you. Your friend, Vladimir Stafiev. P.S. I'm really weary for something to read, and also, surely, in Sitka, there must be a Russian-American dictionary. Please tell me what it costs, and I will send you the money. But a complete dictionary with grammar. Nearly all of the historic material written about Fort Kenai comes from Army correspondents or the recollections of soldiers. There is little that is written from the perspective of a person not associated with the American military, making the Stafiev letter quite valuable. Within, we hear of the difficult decisions facing Stafiev and his family, of the challenges of learning a new language, and his befuddlement over the activities within the fort, including the burning of old buildings within the redoubt. Stafiev and his family ended up moving to Woody Island, near Kodiak. Many of the descendants of Evgenia and Vladimir live in Kodiak to this day. In September of 1870, Battery F left Kenai. 
That year, the posts at Kodiak, Tongass, Wrangell, and the Privilofts were closed as well, leaving only the post at Sitka. It cost the Army $330,000 a year to operate these Alaskan outposts, which is a hefty amount when you consider the entire purchase price of Alaska was only $7.2 million. Moreover, they encountered, generally speaking, hospitable Native Americans who gave little indication that they would physically oppose American rule. You know, basically it was a, a, a patterned act of American colonialism where if you have new territory, you first send in the military pacify the natives. Then you send in the church. Well, there already was a church here. And then you send in the merchants. And well, there already was uh, an Alaska commercial company here. And then the rest flood in and transform the area from a manifest destiny standpoint. And that didn't happen here. The military came, they said there's no reason, there's no, there's no hostile natives, we're leaving. With that, Battery F left behind the buildings and one soldier who had completed his military service. I asked Dr. Boris if the short-lived Fort Kenai really made an impact on the Cook Inlet Denina. The only difference locally would have been uh, a man named Wilson was put in charge of the buildings that had been um, uh, established, and they had distributed uh, the, the other goods to the Denina people when they left. Uh, so other than some buildings to move into, <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Mm. I don't think there was any, any real uh, change. The real change happened in uh, the 1880s when canneries came in. It was another decade until the real influx of outsiders came to Cook Inlet, bringing about dramatic changes for the Denina people. It was the seafood industry, not the military, that made Cook Inlet American. Over time, the buildings that once composed the Nicholas Readout in Fort Kenai were salvaged for materials or just collapsed until nothing remained above ground. But underwater, a significant remnant persisted from Battery F, the wreck of the torrent. Diver Steve Lloyd located the wreck location, and in 2008, the Alaska State Office of History and Archaeology worked to recover key artifacts from the wreck of the torrent. Three of the mountain howitzers had been rescued from the torrent by Battery F in the days immediately following the wreck. But one remained underwater, and it was the job of state archaeologist Dave McMahon to recover it. The one that we recovered had fallen down into a crevice that was maybe 60 to 80 feet uh, below the surface of the water. But uh, the recovery itself was sort of interesting. And, of course, these military things are still owned by the military, you know, so we had to get uh, the appropriate permissions and authorizations from the, the Department of the Army as well as the General Services Administration uh, to collect the stuff and, and curate it at the State Museum. They've since transferred ownership. But uh, at the time, you know, I thought, well, since this, this is federal property, you know, I'll ask the Coast Guard for help. And I expected a skiff with a pot puller on it to help get this little howitzer up. And instead, they, they sent the hickory, which is a big buoy tender. Uh, so they, uh, but it turned out to be a really good thing, you know. They, they sort of made a day of it. They allowed their Coast Guard personnel to bring their families and have a barbecue on deck. Picture it. The torrent struck a reef and the soldiers of Battery F worked to salvage three howitzers from the wreck as their families tried to stay warm on the beach. And 140 years later in 2008, the crew of the Coast Guard buoy tender Hickory plucked that fourth howitzer from Kachemak Bay as their families picnicked on deck.
Today, we learned how the U.S. initially tried to exert control over its new territory, how individual lives were impacted by the Alaska Purchase, and about the early interactions among the Denina and Anglo-Americans. Although the military district of Alaska was short-lived, those mountain howitzers never used in local combat, and the immediate repercussions of Fort Kenai caused but ripples in the Cook Inlet region, when we take the 150-year view, few institutions have impacted the development of Alaska as dramatically as the U.S. military. And it was the second artillery that started at all. Thanks for listening. This episode of Alaska Out of the Vault was recorded and produced at the studio of KMXT in Kodiak, Alaska. Special thanks to the Alaska Historical Commission, Office of History and Archaeology, the Alaska State Museum, the Alaska Historical Library, Dave McMahon, and Alan Boris for making this show possible. I'm Anjali Grantham, the show's writer and producer. Find more information about Alaska's history and this project at my website, www.angeligrantham.com. That's A-N-J-U-L-I-G-R-A-N-T-H-A-M.com. Thanks and take care.